The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Do any of you in your life have a uh, friend or an acquaintance who uh, can kind of go on and on and on and on and on, you know, just kind of keep talking? I wasn't supposed to be funny. Maybe, maybe you're laughing because you're looking at him. I don't know. You probably think that every Sunday, come on. Amen. Wow. Who said that? Well, um, I don't know about you, but when, when, I, when I'm around those people who can, who can talk, uh, I enjoy it greatly. I genuinely do. But sometimes I just got to get going. You know, sometimes I have other commitments in life and I got to get going, and so, you know, I, I wait for them to catch a breath, and I go, oh, that's very cool, thank you for saying that, I really got to get going, sorry, bye, right? <clears throat> but what I'm thinking in my head is, I love you, I care for you, but please just get to the point, right? Get to the point, you don't, you need to give me all of the details, just get to the point, what are you trying to tell me? Well, today, John gets to the point. I wouldn't say John was long-winded, he included every detail he needed to include, but today, John gets to the point. In a way, we have the cliff notes of John's gospel today. We learn what is the purpose of John writing this gospel. So if you would, please open up to John chapter 20. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 907. If you are in the Children's Bible, it is page 1337. Page 907 in the Red Bible, page 1337 in the Children's Bible. Just to give you context to the passage that we're reading, um, Jesus, last week we talked about, or the last three weeks, we talked about how Jesus says, I am the true vine. Shortly after that, he is betrayed by, by Judas. He is handed over to the authorities. He is persecuted. He is flogged. He is crucified, put to death. He is dead for three days. On the third day, he rises again from the dead, conquering death. And on the day of his resurrection, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, to other women. And then he that evening, he appears to the disciples in a locked room. And all of the disciples are there except for Judas, who killed himself, and Thomas. And we don't know where Thomas is. He's kind of MIA. But Jesus appears to them all the night of his resurrection. And then the story we're going to read today takes place eight days after that, a week after Jesus' resurrection in appearance to the disciples. So read along with me. We'll read John 20. Again, it's page 907 in the Red Bible. And we will read verses 24 through 31. Read along with me if you would. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came a week ago. Right. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nail and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. And see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we come to your word today, Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us, just as we prayed. You'd reveal us to yourself in fresh ways, in new ways, in glorious ways. That we would have greater intimacy with you because of your word. Our hearts are so hard. Our hearts are so distracted. We need your grace this morning. Help us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. As Chris mentioned, today we come to the end of our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We have spent 11 months, we started last September, looking at the Gospel of John. And we looked at his first three years of ministry. We kind of cut off the Passion Week, which takes up half of the Gospel of John. But we covered his, his first three years of ministry. And we have seen some unbelievable things and heard some unbelievable things. We've heard claims that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That Jesus is the Word become flesh. We've heard that Jesus is the light of the world. That Jesus offers us living water that wells up to eternal life. We've heard that Jesus is the great I Am. These are audacious, unbelievable claims. We've also seen unbelievable miracles. Jesus turns water into wine. He feeds 5,000 with just a few loaves and fishes. He heals a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. He healed another man who had been blind from birth. And, of course, he rose Lazarus from the dead. And so John shares with us these unbelievable things. But the question is, what is the point? Why is John sharing us with this? A few Years ago, I actually preached on this. It was our second service at Jacob's Well, and I entitled it A Skeptic's Guide to Faith. The whole book of John is a skeptic's guide to faith. The story of Thomas is the culmination of the gospel of John and a summary of a skeptic's guide to faith. John wrote this book so that we might believe something that is simply unbelievable so that we might attain a life that is simply unattainable. And so we're going to walk with Thomas today, a skeptic who is guided to faith. Let's start the beginning of his journey, unbelief. Thomas has been called the patron saint of doubt. Maybe you have heard the phrase, don't be a doubting Thomas, right? Have you heard that phrase? Maybe it was used more a couple years ago, but they say, don't be a doubting Thomas. And to be honest, this label of Thomas is unfair. Not because Thomas didn't doubt, Thomas did indeed doubt, but because Thomas was not alone in his doubt. He had good company. We actually see, we read in the gospel, Mary Magdalene's unbelief. On Resurrection Sunday, Mary brings the spices to the tomb to anoint Jesus' dead body. And when she arrives and an angel says to her in Luke 24, it's up here on the screen, you can read along with me. Luke 24, 5, the angel says to Mary, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you 
while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Jesus had prophesied very specifically at least three times that he would die and then three days later he would raise from the dead. But Mary did not believe and that's why she brought spices to anoint his body. And that's why the angel tells her, remember what he told you, that on the third day he would rise. But Mary wasn't alone in her unbelief either. After the angel appears to her, Mary encounters the risen Lord, and then she rushes back to tell the disciples. And we read of that account in Luke 24, 10 through 11. It says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles, that they had seen the resurrected Savior, that they had heard from the angel. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. It was foolish talk. These were old wives' tales. I can imagine the disciples thinking, okay, these women, they are hysterical. They are tired. They are depressed. They are sad. They are hopeful. And so they just saw something that they thought was Jesus. Maybe it was like a tree in the wind or something. But, but surely this can't be true. And so the disciples didn't believe. But then Jesus came and visited them when Thomas was not with them. And they, of course, believed. And then we get to Thomas's belief, unbelief in, verse, in John 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, you can read in your Bibles, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is an emphatic negative. I will never, ever, ever believe unless I touch his wounds. I will never believe that Jesus is raised from the dead. You know, it's amazing because, because Mary didn't believe Jesus' words that he would raise from the dead. And then the disciples didn't believe Mary's words when she said, we have seen the Lord. And now Thomas doesn't believe Mary or the other women or the disciples. And he says, I too must see the Lord. I must touch him in order to believe. Thomas was no dummy. Thomas did not believe in idle fairy tales. He wanted proof. Sometimes we think that, you know, people in past generations, they're just very, very gullible. Not Thomas, not the disciples. They needed proof. And so what we see in this passage is that doubting Thomas is true, but we also have the doubting disciples, the doubting Mary. What we, what we realize is that doubt is something that is common to all mankind, isn't it? All of us doubt in one way or another and to one degree or another. As I was thinking about this, I thought about really three different expressions and degrees of doubt. And I wanted to share those with you. And I think all of us fall under these, and I'm sure we could probably add more to it. But one expression of doubt might be confessing unbelief. These are the people who say, they're honest, they say, I don't believe in God. Or if they do believe in God, they say, I don't believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. Or how do I know Jesus died and rose again, you know? I know that Caesar lived, but how do I know that Jesus lived? And so they confess their unbelief very honestly. If you're here today and you are a confessing unbeliever, John chapter 20 was written for you. Okay? There's also another type of doubt that is expressed, and this is ignorant unbelief. 
These are those who were probably raised in the church, who probably said, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe in Jesus, that he lived, that he died on the cross, that he rose from the dead. I believe these things, and yet it has no impact on their life. It doesn't transform them in any way, shape, or form. And so they believe it intellectually, but they have never placed their trust in Christ. They have never rested on Christ for their salvation. They consider themselves good people, maybe because of past church attendance or present church attendance or whatever it might be, but they rest on themselves for salvation and not on Christ. Jesus is constantly rebuking religious people in the New Testament, constantly. And calling them to repent and to faith. And so maybe you're here and you're an ignorant unbeliever. You think you're a believer, but you really aren't. If that's you, John 20 was written for you. And then there's the final. So there's confessing unbelief. There's ignorant unbelief. And the final one is believing unbelief. (laughs) Interesting, huh? Believing unbelief. What does this mean? Well, I think Thomas fits into this category. Another man from the New Testament that does is, I don't know if you remember that man, he was in Mark 9, but he comes to Jesus because he believes that Jesus can heal his son. And so he asks Jesus to heal his son, and Jesus says to him, all things are possible for those who believe. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. I love this guy. I can identify him with him, can't you? That even in my belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, even though I worship him and delight in him, I still disbelieve many times in my life. This is kind of a situational unbelief. I have a friend who was looking for a job, and he told me uh, of this job offer or this job situation that he had, and He said, yeah, there's like a 70% chance that I'm going to get this job. There's a 70% chance that I'm going to get this. And he was one of 50 candidates that was chosen to go and look at this job. And so he went and interviewed for it, and he came back, and he said, you know, there's like a 98% chance I'm going to get this job. And so he was so excited about this job opportunity. And yet they responded saying, you know, we are going to expand our search. We're going to look at other candidates and as would be with any of us questions start coming to mind god i thought this was your plan god where are you in this what's going on lord what are you up to see even when we believe we still unbelieve don't we we still struggle with belief you know maybe your unbelief expresses itself in fear fear of what others think of you Fear of failure, fear of death, fear of life, fear of sickness. Whatever that fear might be, it's an expression of unbelief, of not believing that Christ rules, that Christ reigns, that he has everything in his control, that he has power over all things, and he is doing all things for God's glory and for our good. And so doubt is an expression, I'm sorry, fear is an expression of unbelief. Another expression of unbelief is sin in general. You know, we return to habitual sin because we forget that Christ has raised from the dead. We don't believe that he satisfies all of our longings in Christ. And so like a dog returns to its vomits, we as people who believe in Jesus Christ return to our sin 
because we don't believe. And so you see here from Thomas, from the women, from the disciples, from your own life, from my life, that doubt is something that all of us deal with. And whether your unbelief is a confessing unbelief, an ignorant unbelief, or a believing unbelief, John 20 is written for you. And so it continues to show us how do we purge this unbelief from our lives, from our hearts. Well, it is by faith, but it also comes by evidence. We see in this passage that Jesus gives strong evidence of his resurrection to the skeptic Thomas, to the skeptic of the disciples, to the skeptic Mary. Remember how emphatic Thomas was in his unbelief. Verse 25 says, The other disciples told Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see visibly with my sight, with my own eyes, in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into the side, I will never believe. He wants visible evidence. And so we go to verse 26. Eight days later, after the resurrection of Christ, after he appeared to the ten disciples, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Jesus appeared to Thomas visibly so he could see the man that he has been following for three years. And Jesus doesn't only appear to Thomas. Jesus doesn't only appear to the disciples and to the women that loved him. We, are, we read in 1 Corinthians that the resurrection Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. More than 500. In other words, the writer of Corinthians, Paul, is saying, go ask them. They're still alive. Go ask them. They'll tell you that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so over four, 500 people saw visible evidence of Christ's resurrection. We also see there's audible evidence here. Jesus came and stood among them in verse 26 and said, peace be with you. Now, this is no groundbreaking teaching. This is simply how people greeted one another. But they could hear that Jesus was alive. This was audible evidence that he was raised from the dead. Now, people might think, well, maybe this resurrected Jesus was just an imposter. Maybe it was like a brother that looked a lot like him, right? Or, or maybe it's a ghost, and these people are imagining these things because they long so much for Jesus to be alive. And so they hear this ghost, they see this ghost. But the final evidence is conclusive. The final evidence is physical evidence. They could touch him. They could feel him. Remember in verse 25, Thomas said, unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas is saying, not only do I want to see Jesus, I want to touch his wounds because no one, no imposter, no ghost can fake his wounds and still be alive. This is 100% authentication. This is better than DNA evidence. And so Thomas says, I want to feel his wounds. And when he is proclaiming this, Jesus is not there. And yet Jesus comes to Thomas, verse 27, and says, put your finger here and see my hands. Put on and put out your hand and place it into my side. Jesus knew exactly what Thomas was requesting. Thomas touched Jesus. We see in other places, too, that Mary grabs onto Jesus earlier in verse 17, that she clings to him, and Jesus says, don't cling to me, I gotta go. 
but go and tell the disciples. In the next chapter, we see Jesus is eating with the disciples. He makes a fire. And so Jesus provides physical evidence. He provides audible evidence. He provides visual evidence to skeptics. Last summer, I was working in my garage on my day off, and, um, and I see this, this girl coming towards me with a backpack on, and, and I think, okay, either she's an evangelist or she wants to sell me something because there's another girl on the other side of the street with the same backpack on talking to my neighbors. And so I'm sitting in the garage working, and I just want to be alone. And so I'm thinking, okay, I want to get rid of this person as fast as, as possible while still glorifying God. And so how do I do that, right? So, so she comes up, and she says, uh, well, she says, hey, I have this cleaner that I want to sell you. And I said, I'm, we're okay with who we, what we have. Thank you very much. You know, good luck to you. And she says, well, can I just show you one thing? Okay, you can show me one thing. You know, that's how salespeople work. Anyways, so she pulls out this white dish rag, and she puts, she takes a Sharpie marker and draws on it, and then she takes this squirt bottle of special sauce, I guess. I don't know what it's called. And she sprays it, and then she takes the washcloth, and she rubs it together, and she shows it to me, and it's white. And I'm going, okay. Whatever, you know, like maybe this hat works on washcloths. Maybe the washcloth is wet. Maybe it's a erasing magic marker. I don't know what's, you know, she's selling me something. I'm sure when I get inside, it's not going to work. So I go, listen, on, and I'm in my garage. The utility door is on the back of my garage. I said, if you look on the back of my garage door, the utility door, I said, my daughter has colored everything in, in magic marker in Sharpie on the back of that door. And we have tried everything to get rid of that Sharpie. If you can clean that off, I will buy it. <laughs> and so she goes back, and she opens the door, and she goes, whoa, yeah. <laughs> and um, she sprays the special sauce on it or whatever. And she gets there, and she's rubbing, 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 rubbing. Like, you know, three minutes go by, she's rubbing. I'm like, I got her. She lifts off the rag. It's gone. The marker is gone. And she looked at me, and I said, I probably should have found out the price before I told you I was going to buy that. And she said to me, no joke, she said, what, do you think $1,000 is too much? And then she goes, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. So we did indeed buy it. <laughs> but I was a skeptic, I mean, from the get-go. I didn't even want to believe it in, to a certain extent. But the evidence was too overwhelming. I saw the evidence that this stuff worked. You know, some people think that to believe in miracles, to believe that Jesus lived, to believe that Jesus died, to believe that Jesus rose again, you have to commit intellectual suicide. You can't not be intelligent and believe that Christ rose from the grave. There are many people out there who think that. But the visible proof, the physical proof, the audible proof of the resurrection is so overwhelming. It takes more faith not to believe than to believe that Christ raised from the dead. There's actually a note from a historian named Josephus. He was not a Christian, never became a Christian, never claimed to be a Christian. He was a Jew. And he wrote this in his Antiquity of the Jews in 93 AD. You can read along with me. He wrote this. When Pilate, upon the accusations of the first men amongst us, condemned Jesus to be crucified, those who had formerly loved him did not cease to follow him. For he appeared to them on the third day, living again as the divine 
prophets foretold, along with a myriad of other marvelous things concerning him. This comes from the words of a historian, someone who does not trust in Christ for his salvation. But the evidence was so overwhelming that he recorded it as history. And so we see that God, by his grace, gave us evidence of Christ's salvation that skeptics like us might believe. Okay, so what are we to do? Just said indeed, we are called to believe. Verse 27, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. And then here we see the response that such evidence demands. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And then Thomas, the patron saint of doubt, appropriately responds, my Lord and my God. This is a serious statement from Thomas. If you know anything at all about the Old Testament, you shall have no other gods besides the Lord God himself. And if you claim to have other gods, it's under penalty of death that you do that. And yet he looks at Jesus and he says, you are my God. For 20 chapters, we read about the life of Christ. We listen, we hear, we process, we examine the things that are said, the things that happen, the claims of Christ. We read. And yet now Christ says, we must read ourselves. In light of the whole gospel of John, in light of Thomas's journey, in light of the evidence, Jesus demands a response from you that we do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus continues John's thought, or John continues Jesus' thought in verse 30. We read, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Out of Jesus' three years of ministry, John actually only records about 21 days of Jesus' life, about three weeks, okay? Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written. Why? What is the point? What is the purpose? Why did John write this? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You may have confessing unbelief. You may have ignorant unbelief. You may have believing unbelief. Whatever it is, the gospel of John was written for you, that you might believe that God himself came in the flesh in Jesus Christ, was born upon a virgin for you, that he was raised, that he was sinless, that he went to the cross and died, taking your sin upon himself, that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and takes away the sins of sinners like you and me, that he was dead for three days, that he rose up from the grave, and that he ascended into heaven. Jesus calls us to believe, not just intellectually, but experientially. That we would place all of us, all of our hope, all of our trust in Jesus Christ. The greatest, one of the greatest illustrations I have of the faith that Jesus requires of us is an illustration of a tightrope walker named Charles Blondin. And I've used this before, and so some of you have heard it. But Charles Blondin was a famous tightrope walker. And he used to tightrope across the Niagara Falls on a, on a, on a one-inch thick wire that was 1,100 feet long and 160 feet above the water. And he would do this time and time again. People would come and see him do this. Was his, this was in the 1800s, I believe. And he'd even do tricks on the wire. Like he would get in the middle and jump up and down. He actually would do uh, handstands on it, somersaults. 
He pushed a wheelbarrow across the wire one time, blindfolded. He um, even stopped at the middle of the boat, and, or in the middle of the wire, and prepared an omelet on, on a camping stove. And so he did all of these tricks. He proved himself to be a very talented and dependable man on the tightrope. Well, one day, after doing his routine, he gets to the platform, and he addresses the crowd, and he says, do you believe I can do it again? They're like, yeah, you can do it. You can do it. And he says, do you think I can do it with someone on my shoulders? You can do it. You can do it. Go, go, go. Do I have any volunteers? <laughs> that's, that's one of those situations where everyone takes a, a step back, you know. Well, after some silence, finally one man stepped out. It was Blondin's manager, Harry Colcord. He had seen the evidence that this man was trustworthy on the tightrope. He'd seen it many times, and he fully trusted him, not just to say it intellectually, but to believe it with his life. And he gets up, and inch by inch, they cross the tightrope to the other side. Charles Blondin gets to the other side, lets the manager down, turns to the man and says, do you think I could do it again? Because he wasn't part of the other discussion. He says, do you think I could do it again? And they said, he said, yeah, absolutely. And he said, all right, come on, get on my shoulders. To which the man responds, no way. Not a chance. You see, there is a difference between intellectually believing that Jesus lived, died, and rose again and entrusting your whole life upon him, and entrusting your eternal salvation upon him, entrusting your life right now, saying, whatever you ask me to do, Jesus, I will do, because you are Lord of my life. See, the Gospel of John is written for skeptics, that given the evidence and the testimony of the Gospel, that we might go from unbelief to belief. So I think it's appropriate that to end this series on the Gospel of John, and it and this, and this time looking at the, gospel, the, the story of Thomas and his journey from belief to un, unbelief to belief, that we would confess as a church what the church has confessed throughout history about what we do indeed believe. And as we join together to confess this together, I'd encourage you not only to confess it with your head, but to confess it with your heart. That is not only intellectual faith, but you trust your whole life to Jesus Christ. So if you would please stand with me. And I want to read together the Apostles' Creed. I want to read, what do we believe? Because Jesus calls us not to disbelieve, but to believe. If you're here today and you don't believe this, um, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're honest. And we would encourage you to believe. But we'd also ask you to stay silent. There's no prayer, uh, sorry, no pressure here to perform for us. But if you do believe the things that we have talked about, the things that the church has committed to throughout the ages, Proclaim proudly what you believe. Follow along with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, 
the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Do not disbelieve, but believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Lord God, as we stand here and confess what we believe, we also confess that there are many times we don't believe this. And it's evidenced by the fear in our life, by the sin that we allow to fester in our life. We don't believe that you're sufficient. We don't believe that you will take care of all things. And so we worry and we pursue other, other gods. And so forgive us for that, Lord. And yet strengthen our faith today. Remind us by the evidence that you are alive, that you are reigning, and that you are our Lord and our God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.